third to the last book of the Bible. So if you want to go to Revelation, go back to Jude, and then go back one more to Third John. A short epistle, just one chapter, and we'll look at a man by the name of Gaius. And we'll end up doing a little bit of a overview of this whole book, this one chapter book of the Bible. But there's four men who are identified as or by the name Gaius in the New Testament. But we're going to look at one that appears to be unique, totally different than the other three, uh, though there are four who are identified in the New Testament by this name, there doesn't seem to be any connection with the other three. He seems to be a distinct individual from the other three that are mentioned in the New Testament. The first one that is mentioned, uh, the name Gaius that we see identified, is in Acts 19 in verse 29. Acts 19 in verse 29. And he is a companion of Paul a native of Macedonia. And then there's, in Acts 20 and verse 4, a man from Derby in Lyconia, who was also a companion of Paul. Uh, he is also named Gaius. And then in Romans 16 and verse 23, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 14, we see another man by the name of Gaius, who was the apostle's host. This would be Paul, the apostle Paul, he hosted the Apostle Paul while he was in Corinth. He was converted and baptized by Paul. But these individuals do not appear to be in any way related to or identified the same as here in 3 John and verse number 1. This particular individual appears to be totally separate, distinct individual from those other three. There's no historical extra-biblical evidence nor uh, evidence within the scriptures that links this man to any of those other three that are mentioned there in Acts or uh, Romans or 1 Corinthians. So who is this man named Gaius? Well, 3 John, verse 1, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the, in the truth... Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Then we learn a little bit more about this individual in verses 5 through 8. In verse 5 we read, Beloved, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles, we therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So in these eight verses we learn uh, a little bit about Gaius. We also learned a little bit about the early church, and we can glean some good biblical principles and character traits that we can apply in our daily lives. We see, first of all, the elder is John. 
So John is the elder referenced in verse number 1 who is writing the book of 3 John, the epistle, as a letter to Gaius. Obviously, by the inspiration of God, this letter would have then been received by the church, accepted and understood as the inspired word of God, and obviously then preserved for us in the canon of Scripture for us today. So Gaius was well-beloved. We read there in verse number 1, unto the well-beloved Gaius. Literally, the phrase is dearly beloved. It's a single Greek word, akapetos, and you can see agape, or agapetos, akapetos, however you pronounce that. You see the term agape. That is the highest term for love in the Koine Greek language. But we see the ending there, so we understand that it is used in a noun sense, and it's translated into a single word in the King James, well-beloved, but can also be translated into two words, well-beloved or dearly beloved. So this man was greatly loved by John. This is a term that is used of someone who has endeared themselves to someone else, or these two individuals have a a strong uh, affection for one another. Obviously, this is not in any kind of homosexual or uh, perverted way. This is clearly an agape love between two men who love the Lord and have served the Lord in some way, shape, or form together. From what we understand, John was probably at this man's church. There's talk about commentaries, whether he was in Rome or he was in Turkey, probably in western Turkey, because John's ministry in the end of his life was when he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. He would have been off the coast of Turkey. John's ministry was probably there along the western area of Asia Minor, what we know as modern Turkey. So he was probably in a church there in western Turkey. We're not sure exactly which city or which church, but nevertheless, John and Gaius had more than likely ministered together in some way. Now this name Gaius is a common name among the Romans from that that era, from that time frame. So by the fact that he has a Roman name would seem to indicate that Gaius could possibly have been a Gentile. And we know from verse number 4 that he was probably a convert led to the Lord by the Apostle John. So John had probably ministered in Gaius' church. Gaius is likely a Roman because this name was common among the Romans. And John likely was the one who led him to Christ. Verse number four, we, we know the verse well. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And that is a joy not just for a parent, but for a pastor, for any of us who have opportunity to lead someone to the Lord or to mentor someone, whether it be as a parent or as a grandparent, or whether it be in ministry in church, 
there is something special about seeing someone come to Christ, come to the Lord under your mentorship, under your leadership as a parent or whatever the case may be, and not only to see them come to Christ, but to see them months, weeks, years later, still loving the Lord, faithfully serving the Lord. And it's, it's been a blessing. Um, I am in no way, shape, or form a, a great pastor or a great mentor. I've had the blessing of seeing uh, some uh, young men and young ladies uh, through our uh, ministry get saved, grow, and now have families of their own. And one of them is, is working at the Ark Encounter Creation Museum. And uh, he basically runs the fudge shop for the Ark Encounter and the Creation Museum. And I guess there's some, at least one other fudge shop in the local communities down there. And we have a, a really good time whenever we go down to the Ark or the Creation Museum and connecting with uh, my friend Drew. And uh, we go back to the early days when Kelly and I first got married and I was teaching geometry at the little Christian school there in Terre Haute and Drew was one of my students and Drew struggled greatly in geometry and uh, I even taught him in Algebra 1, taught him in U.S. History and we just had uh, a hard, he just had a hard time with math and I, I'm not a mathematician, I, I enjoy math, uh, I don't do it very well very quickly in my head. I usually have to write things down. I'm very methodical. I got good grades in math in high school, but I was one of the slowest people. I was very methodical. If we had 50 minutes to take a test, I took 49 and a half minutes. I was one of the last people to turn my test in. You know, everybody else was done, and they were looking at me because I was a little slowpoke over there, but I usually got a, a better grade than most of the kids in the class. And I don't, I don't say that to brag. I just, I, I'm not... I'm not a real good mathematician, but Drew really struggled in math, and we, we clicked. Um, just, I was able to, to help him, and just through the couple years that we were there, uh, Drew really started to, to grow in the Lord, and then he went through some hard times in high school, and they ended up moving to the Cincinnati area, and then he took a job at uh, the Ark Encounter Creation Museum, and he basically runs the fudge shop. So almost every time we go, we get free fudge. Um, and then they started caramel popcorn or kettle corn, kettle corn. And so we get bags of free kettle corn now every time we go. Um, so anyway, but Drew is one that I look at and I just, I'm just thankful. There is a young man. He's now uh, getting ready to have his fourth child. And the, the man serves in his local church. He loves the Lord. And he's just faithful serving, and it's just a joy to, to see him, to talk with him, and to think that we had a little bit of influence in his life in, in those couple of years, and to still see him walking in truth. And then, of course, um, we have a long ways to go as parents, uh, and our kids uh, are, are, are still very young, <laughs> not as young as they once were, uh, but we're thankful for uh, what God is doing in their life, and uh, they know if, if they mess up that dad's going to come and and, and kill them. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> no, just kidding. They hold me accountable. And uh, of course, we love our children dearly. And uh, we're thankful for God's grace in their life, having the opportunity to baptize all four of my children, having the opportunity to, even in our own home, uh, a couple of them come to Christ. 
but we have a desire for them to walk in truth. And you as parents and grandparents, you've seen that with your own children. And it's a great joy. John had the opportunity probably to lead Gaius to the Lord. And now he sees Gaius as a faithful man of God in the church. And he calls him well-beloved, dearly beloved. And he makes reference in verse 4 to this great joy of seeing his children, his spiritual child, walk in truth. What a joy that is. John was very concerned for Gaius's temporal as well as his spiritual needs. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Gaius is a godly man, but physically he must be struggling somehow. There must be something physically, because he is saying, I wish, and literally you could even plug in the word prayer there, I pray, I wish, it's a strong word for for prayer, so the King James translators translated it wish because it's such a strong term for the desire, the prayer, that Gaius's physical health be as good as his spiritual health. His spiritual health was strong, but obviously he had some sort of physical difficulty. And so we read there that John had this burden, had this prayer, had this wish for Gaius to have physical health like he did spiritually. And this speaks to the the fact that we pray for physical needs as well as for the spiritual needs. God often uses the physical needs in people's lives, in our own lives, to draw us closer to Christ. God has a purpose, God has a plan. His grace is sufficient in our times of suffering, in our times of tribulation and trial. And God is working in our physical needs to draw us close to him, maybe to purge and to prune, maybe to chasten. But in whatever physical trial we have, whatever physical tribulation, God is working. And God is doing his perfect work to make us more like his son. And sometimes we don't respond as well in our times of physical need as we should. But we we obviously pray for physical needs, for material needs, for temporal needs. We have a prayer list. And we know that, that Jesus, he had compassion for the physical needs of people. How many times in the gospel accounts do we see people coming to Christ with a physical need and Christ meets that physical need? We know that Christ cares. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But in all the miracles that Jesus would do in the Gospels, what was Jesus' primary goal or intention? Was for their spiritual life to grow, for their spiritual needs to be met, for that person who may be suffering physically to, first of all, get saved. Secondly, that if they are saved, to increase their faith, to, again, purge or to prune, to strengthen, to draw us to a greater level of faith, a greater degree of faith and trust. All kinds of ways in which God is using the physical needs to point us to a greater relationship, a stronger relationship with him. And so Gaius had this strong, vibrant relationship with God. And Paul is, excuse me, I keep saying Paul, John, John is praying, is wishing, desiring for his physical needs to be as strong 
or or his physical life to be as strong as his spiritual life. Because his spiritual life was strong and he just was desiring that Gaius would be healed of whatever it is, that he would get well, that whatever sickness or whatever temporal need he had, that it would be met so that his physical needs would be met and be as strong as his spiritual needs and his spiritual life. And so we see, again, the priority of the spiritual. As much as John wanted Gaius's physical needs, physical health, to be as strong as his spiritual, John is emphasizing the spiritual. And we'll see that here in the next several verses. So we see the priority upon the spiritual. So we may end up with, like the Apostle Paul, a thorn in the flesh that God never takes away. We may have a new normal because of a physical setback or whatever the temporal need might be. It may result in something that is life-altering, life-changing that we just have to live with for the rest of our lives, a new normal. Yet God's grace is sufficient. And I think that John is recognizing that in Gaius. Gaius may not have had the physical health that matched his spiritual health. His spiritual health was much stronger. But we don't see Gaius boohooing over his physical health and his physical needs. We don't see Gaius kind of just sitting back and throwing a pity party. No, instead, we see Gaius, in spite of whatever physical setback, whatever physical need he had, we see Gaius as a charitable giver, as a sacrificial giver to the Lord's work. Gaius had a very strong testimony among the brethren. Verse number three, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. The brethren came to John and said, Gaius is doing this, and Gaius is giving in this way, and Gaius is serving the Lord, and Gaius has this character. This this is the, the way Gaius is serving in the church. The brethren had much to say about Gaius's spiritual life, his testimony, his work for the Lord, his giving, his sacrifice, his service. Again, I can't help but make the application. When people talk about us, yes, they may talk about our skill in a particular area. They may talk about our money. They may talk about the car we drive. They may talk about the house that we live in. They may talk about the luscious green grass out in the front yard and how there's no weeds. They may talk about all of those things, but would the best, the biggest the most obvious thing that they would say about us is that we love the Lord and that we are serving Him and that we are faithful in the Lord's work. Would that be true? Could people say that of us? If we were to be described to someone, if we were to go to the Apostle John right now and someone were to talk about us and give a reference to the Apostle John of our character, of our testimony, of our service, what would they say? What could be said about us? Gaius, it was said of him that the Apostle John rejoiced greatly. The brethren came and they testified of the truth that is in thee, the truth that is in him. That means he embodied it. He lived it. It was a part of his character. This was a man who loved the truth, lived the truth, 
It was all about, it was, his life was all about the truth. Even as thou walkest in the truth. They even would testify and say, Gaius is walking in the truth just like you would want him to do, John. Just like you had mentored him. Just like you had taught him. Just like you had discipled him to do. He's doing that, John. No wonder John rejoiced greatly. What a blessing that is. And that's why we see in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. What else do we learn about Gaius? Again, he walked in the truth. But then we see that he was charitable. He was a giver. We don't know what kind of physical wealth he had, but he must have had something. But whatever he had, he gave it to the Lord. He understood that whatever he had belonged to the Lord already. So when we give to the Lord's work, we're, as we sometimes will say at the offering, giving back a portion of what the Lord has already given to us. Gaius understood that. He was a cheerful giver. He modeled it. He saw his generosity as furthering God's work. He saw his generosity as in keeping with the example that God had set in sacrificing his son and sending his son to pay the penalty for our sins, to die on the cross for us. We even see there in verse 5, Beloved, thou dost faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. He was faithful in his giving to the brethren as well as to strangers. Who are the strangers? There are some who would say he was just giving to preachers who would come and pass through the church. Very well, could be. He gave faithfully to the brethren, gave faithfully to the church. Also, maybe to preachers, itinerant preachers like John. Maybe the Apostle Paul at some point had come through his church. We know Paul traveled in that area as well. He was a giver, but the strangers could also be to Gentiles who were getting saved and getting involved in the church and had maybe sacrificed in some way because of leaving their family, leaving their particular way of life as a Gentile, getting saved and now following the Lord. And maybe he was charitable in helping them and and, and meeting some needs as they got involved in the church and began to serve. But we go on in verse number 6, "...which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles." couple things that we must make mention of before we're done here. Okay, we see that there are, in verse number 6, there are, uh, there's, a, there's a witness, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Okay, we have the opportunity to be fellow helpers. Verse 8 makes reference to fellow helpers. Philippians 4 and verse number 3 speaks of fellow laborers. Philemon, verse 24, speaks of fellow laborers. There's a witness from the church that Gaius's charitable giving has furthered the work of the Lord in clear, obvious, and distinct ways. Born witness, verse 6, 
after a godly sort, at the end of verse 6, for his name's sake they went forth, verse 7. All speak to the fact that Gaius had given charitably in specific ways for the gospel, for the kingdom of God, for the church to be advanced with the truth of the word of God, with the gospel. And John references that as being fellow helpers. Think about that. When we give for the furtherance of the gospel, when we give for the furtherance of God's kingdom, we are fellow helpers. We are fellow laborers. We may not be able to go into the rainforest or the jungle of the Amazon and the Napo River like Carlos Rubio can do in unique ways. But we are fellow helpers with him. We're fellow laborers with him. We may not be able to go to Myanmar, translate from the Hebrew into a Myanmar dialect like Dr. Kim is doing. But we have given to his work and he's a fellow laborer. He's a fellow, we are fellow helpers. We have an opportunity in our giving to not just further the gospel here in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, but also into the Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we have the opportunity of being fellow laborers with ministers of the gospel, with the work of the gospel. We're fellow laborers with the, the ladies in Kids for Truth, with those who are in the deaf ministry Bible study, with Sunday school, with the sound booth, with painting walls and putting chairs away and putting pews in place, on and on we could go. As this body of believers preaches and teaches and declares and evangelizes and shares the truth and upholds and supports the truth and raises children in the truth and raises grandchildren in the truth and delivers the truth and lives the truth, we together as fellow helpers and fellow laborers get to be a part of God's work. And we have the opportunity to bear witness through our giving, like Gaius did, who is commended by the, gospel, by, by the, the Apostle John in this, in this epistle. And we have that opportunity as we give, as we sacrifice, as we serve, to be a part, even if it's just a small way, we have a part in God's kingdom, in the furtherance of God's kingdom, in the furtherance of the gospel, in the advancement of the truth. And Gaius had that. And then one more point here. Notice in verse number 7, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Who's responsible for getting the gospel out, for supporting the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom? Who is? The church is. It is, it is, a, it is a disobedient act for a church to depend upon unsaved or to partner with the unsaved for the furtherance of the gospel. Okay? Quick illustration. I know I'm going over. I'm, I'm sorry. We have a golf outing in the fall, and we get some donations for some prizes from local restaurants and places. We're not asking those restaurants, those 
businesses to support the work of the gospel and to support the work of the church. They're giving some prizes for, they're donating some prizes for some, uh, for, for the golf outing. That's a big difference than asking or partnering with unsaved, even nonprofit or charitable groups and saying, can you come together with us and we be joint ministers of charitable deeds in a, okay, a, 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 an area that is of need in the culture Okay, whether it be poverty or whether it be troubled kids or whatever the case may be. But the church's responsibility isn't to go to the unsaved and say, hey, can you contribute to our efforts in reaching? Because what happens? We know 2 Corinthians 6, the gospel gets undermined. And too many churches today have bought into a social gospel and the truth, the hard truth of the gospel is sold out in order to be able to have the money or to have the influence of a, of a, of a, of a, of a group or a partnership with unsaved entities, even false religion or false religious entities and organizations. Churches who have sold themselves out for cultural change, for social gospel, who are now partnering with unsaved and false religious groups and organizations and saying, well, the ends justify the means. It's for a good purpose. It's for reforming the culture. It's for whatever. And it's very clear right here in verse number eight, or excuse me, verse number seven, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Gentiles is an obvious reference to the unsaved. Gaius contributed to the church, to the advancement of the gospel, and John commends him and says, this is the church's work, and you were a part of it, Gaius. And it showed once again how we don't need the unsaved and false religions to try to support the work of the gospel and the advancement of God's kingdom. It doesn't work. Those partnerships cannot work. They are in violation of 2 Corinthians 6. That's a hard thing, I realize, in our culture today where there's an ecumenical spirit. And we've got to get together with the Catholics and we've got to get together with all these other uh, decent, outwardly religious groups because we're, we're all anti-abortion, right? We're all pro-life. We're, we're all pro-this or pro-that, so why can't we just all get along? Common denominator, ecumenical. It's dangerous. Take nothing of the Gentiles. Take nothing of the unsaved. We close with these final points here. Joseph was, excuse me, Joseph, John. John was concerned for the church. In opposition to Gaius was Diotrephes, who's condemned for desiring the preeminence. Apparently he was malicious, verse number 10. He was working against Gaius and his charitable giving. And then finally in verse 12, Demetrius is commended. He has a good report. So a lot we can learn from Gaius. I hope that uh, this has been a help and an encouragement to us tonight. And uh, thank you for being here. And hope that you have a great rest of the week. And we look forward to being back together, uh, as many of us as can be, for uh, the funeral on Saturday afternoon. And then, of course, worshiping together on Sunday. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for the example of Gaius, for his charitable giving, for his life of sacrifice and service. Lord, may we follow his example. Lord, may we desire the furtherance of the gospel and the advancement of your kingdom as we give, as we serve, as we humbly, Lord, live for you. And pray that, Lord, we will have a testimony like Gaius. And, Lord, may we have that same commendation that there is rejoicing because we walk in the truth. And we thank you, Lord, for our time together tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, thank you for being here. Have a great rest of the week.